0: Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, verse we read Sunday morning, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. And so we have direct command in scripture to get our heads into the heavens. And so tonight we look into the throne room of God once again, that wonderful, wild, worshipful heavenly scene. And let's get a running start. Verse 5 of chapter 4, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. I invite you to try, if you can, to imagine what's being described. Try to see it. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center... And around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. What's really interesting to me is when you begin to look through the scriptures to get a glimpse of the heavenly places, it takes some time. And I'm talking across history. There are at least eight times in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, eight times that we see the heavens opened, even in some cases, if only for a brief moment. Eight times where there is vision given, or where God has granted revelations of His glorious throne. That's the one time I'll say revelations. Because there's more than one time where someone's been given a revelation of the throne room, where they've actually looked up and seen his glorious throne but it took 2600 years from Adam and Eve for God to give the first glimpse that was to Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel were told that they saw the God of Israel and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself so it's almost as though they were looking up into the throne room. That's Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. First time you get a glimpse into into the heavenlies, into something beyond this world. Then you fast forward from that. That was 3,446 years ago. You fast forward to 739 B.C., 2,700 years ago, and Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where he saw the Lord seated on His throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Right around that same time, in 740 B.C., up in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was another prophet named Micaiah who saw the Lord sitting on His heavenly throne. 1 Kings 22.19, 2 Chronicles 18.18. 18. And then in 593 B.C., as we read last week, the prophet Ezekiel, there in Babylon, had a vision. He, he saw him. He saw the throne room. Ezekiel chapter 1 In a magnificent scene. And then, there's Daniel's vision. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. He writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up, until the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Does that sound familiar? Revelation chapter 1. But it says his throne... "...was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened." That passage is key, as we'll see tonight. But then from 539, you go another 500 years before the next glimpse... And that's one that Stephen got in 34 A.D. Stephen saw the Lamb, not seated, but standing at the right hand of God, Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Sees Jesus standing up. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture because you get the sense that Jesus is standing in favor of Stephen, cheering him on. Stephen is about to be stoned to death. But before even the last stone can hit, he falls asleep. Jesus is standing there. Fast forward a little bit further in 42 AD, Paul, I think Paul beat them all. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writing, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. He said 14 years ago. Well, he's writing 2 Corinthians in 56. So it was 42 when this happened. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And you Bible students know that Jewish people see three heavens. They see the atmosphere. They see outer space. And then the third heaven is where God resides. So this one, this man, Paul is referring to himself, is caught up into the throne room of God. He says... And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into, note this word, paradise. Paradiso. It's the same word that Jesus used talking in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 to Ephesus. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Well, Paul says, I was caught up to that garden and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak Paul didn't. He wouldn't talk about that event for 14 years. Now, there are those who think that this happened, and I may even have mentioned this when we were studying in Acts, Acts chapter 14, verse 19, where Paul is stoned just outside of Lystra, left for dead. Perhaps he did die. And God raised him right then and there. And it's been suggested that that's when he was caught up. There's a timing problem because that was only 9 to 10 years before this, and Paul says it was 14 years ago. So it doesn't fit the time frame. But what's amazing to me is, and the reason I mentioned this glimpse of heaven, among all of them so far, in this glimpse we see a man caught up. The word is harpazoed, raptured. Paul caught up alive, as will be those who are alive In Christ. And Paul saw the garden of God. But for 14 years he kept it to himself. For 14 years he didn't speak a word. And even when he does, he said, it's inexpressible. Things I heard, the things I saw, I'm not allowed, I'm not permitted to talk about. 50 years go by. And John is given a revelation and told to write it down. And the revelation, as we have seen so far, is expansive. It's huge. It's future. All that takes place. John's revelation from the island of Patmos, when he is caught up in this eighth and most expansive vision of any of the glimpses of heaven given. Why so long? Think about that. Eight glimpses of heaven. This is the big one. But they would be sprinkled across history. Two and a half millennia go by before God even gives a brief glimpse. And then little glimpses that we know of. There may have been more, but we only know of seven different ones until finally, 95 or so A.D., John gets the revelation. Why is the book of Revelation the last to be written? And why does God wait so long before, boom, pow, here's the big one. Here's what I want you to see. I think it's very simply because God wanted us to be ready to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we needed all this time and all of history and all of this behind us to get us prepared so that when the big revelation comes, we wouldn't be, ooh, ah, cherubim, seraphim, oh wow, flashes of lightning and thunder, oh, look at all the elders, look at the angels. No, we would be saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. God waits until we're ready to see the main attraction at the throne room of God, and it is Jesus. Now as we continue on tonight in this heavenly court, I want to talk about three things, just three. Crowns, a crisis, and finally, the Christ. First of all, crowns. We didn't really talk about this last week. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. We talked about them sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Told you Sunday, I believe the 24 elders represent the church caught up, the royal priesthood of believers. Others think it's half Israel, you know, the patriarchs, and half the apostles, which makes up 24. Could be, possibly... I still maintain that Israel is on one track and the church is on another, so I don't think that that's it. I think what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And in this marvelous light of His glory, we see the 24 elders. Seated on thrones, in white garments, with those leafy, golden Stephanos crowns. And we see it immediately after these things. Immediately coming on the heels of the church age. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, "...do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win." Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or Stephanos, a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. And these are the golden crowns. They are leafy. They are not the big heavy diadem, but they are imperishable. These are imperishable wreaths that we are given And when we come to Revelation chapter 4, we finally understand why we want such crowns. It's for the worship. Don't you want to have something with which to worship Jesus? Which is the point of the crowns in the first place. Verse 9, When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him. Notice, will fall down. So this is future tense. This is what happens after these things. This, I would submit to you, was not happening before these things. Before the church age, there were no elders to fall down. These are the elders after the church age because the elders are now there because the church is present and they fall down and worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So here's the the crown casting. We cast, we lay, we set before Jesus our crowns in worship. But part of that worship, and this is important, it's recognizing where the authority to wear those crowns comes from in the first place. We set the crowns before Him because He is the one who gives us the crowns. He's the one who gives the authority. Mark that. That's right now too. If you have any authority in your life, it's because Jesus gave it to you. If you have any position, if you're in charge of other people, parents over your children, bosses over your your you know underlings, <laughs> if you're in charge of anybody, pause and realize Jesus gave that to you. He puts you in that place. How are you going to handle it? The crown you wear comes from Him. And the crowns we're given in the future, we will recognize, are from Him. We put them before Him. He sets them back on our heads. He's given us authority to rule and reign with Him in the coming kingdom. And this is a reminder of that as we're in this place of of worshiping Him. And what we see in the New Testament, and this is what I wanted to cover that ran out of time for last week. Five crowns. There are five crowns listed in the New Testament Scriptures. We already looked at two of these back when we were studying Revelation 3 verses 11 through 13. The first two that we already saw are the crown of righteousness and the crown of the evangelist. Two of the five crowns. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved His appearing which is the key to righteousness. That's why it's the crown of righteousness. It comes to those who love His appearing. The key to righteousness is loving His appearing. It's the most simple thing in the world and it's taken me 54 years to learn that one. Figure it out. The more I love His appearing, the more righteous my lifestyle. The more I'm distracted from His appearing, the less I think about His appearing, the more my head is in the earth instead of the heavens, the more unrighteous my lifestyle. Test it out. Stop thinking about Jesus and watch your righteousness go out the window. But long for, look for, love the idea of His return, and you will find righteousness increasing in your behavior, in your thinking, in your life. Longing for the return of Jesus does not make you care less, it makes you care more. And I think it makes you more valuable for the kingdom, the crown of righteousness. Then there's the crown of the evangelist, or what we've called the crown of exaltation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? He said the same to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. You're my crown, Paul says. I don't even need a crown of gold. It's you. You who I've taught. You who, who became the church that the Lord called me to plant at Philippi. You're my crown. You're my joy, he says. So stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. How wonderful that would be. To be encircled, crowned, if you will, by those whom you introduced to the great king, to Jesus. So, the crown of exaltation, the crown of righteousness. Number three, the crown of glory, and this one also can be called the shepherd's crown. The shepherd's crown. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you, As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. And then he describes it, and in verse 4 he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The shepherd's crown. Isn't that ironic? The shepherd's crown is the crown of glory. The shepherd, normally normally the best thing he gets is a stick. You know? Dusty sandals. He's out with the sheep. But the crown of glory goes to the shepherd. Which is truly anyone who wants to shepherd like Jesus. It's not just position leadership in a church, although I believe it's that. It's anyone who is in a shepherding role who follows after the pattern of the good shepherd, Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But to be a shepherd like Jesus is to fight for the sheep, to stand for the sheep, to love the sheep, to be one who cares for the sheep. Now, if you want to be a shepherd like Him, here's the key. First of all, get some sheep. No, there's a a different key. It's not just about being around people. It's not just about shepherding or leading or ruling over people. In fact, the best shepherd is the one that stays really close to the great shepherd. The one who's closest to Jesus is going to behave the most like Jesus. The further away we get from Him... The less our personal ministry looks like his. I can tell you from experience, the more I get into myself and my own life, the less I care. The more I look at Jesus, the more I consider Jesus, the more I think about Jesus, the more this fellowship matters to me. The more the church and the world matters to me, the more the kingdom matters to me when I'm close to him. It's like the Levites. You notice that? We we talked about how the camps of Israel were all around the tabernacle. And the fact is, the Levites were the ones that were right next to the tabernacle on all four sides. Why? Because they were in ministry. Their ministry was all of Israel. And to be in ministry for all of Israel, they needed to be as close to God as possible. Because the closer you are to Jesus, the more you will shepherd like Jesus. So this is another crown that's given. The crown of glory. It's also a crown of glory because His glory gets on you when you're so close to Him. The crown of glory, shepherd's crown. Number four, the crown of life. This is an important crown. This goes out to a very unique group of people. Yaakov or James chapter one, verse 12 says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who loves him. So who's that? The one who perseveres under trial. The crown of life goes to the persecuted. It goes to those who experience pain, hardship, tribulation for the sake of Jesus. Not someone who's just had a hard life, but someone whose life has been made more difficult because they love Jesus, they follow Jesus, and they're persecuted for Him. Jesus spoke of the crown of life when He talked to suffering Smyrna. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. Which tells us more about this crown, that those who love Jesus more than their own lives are the recipients of the crown of life. It even goes further than those who are simply persecuted. This is the martyr's crown. This is one and the same. In my opinion, there are others who think the martyr's crown is the fifth crown. I don't think so. I think it's this crown. The crown of life that goes to the persecuted. It goes to the martyr. It goes to the person who loves Jesus more than they love their own life. Revelation 12 verse 11 says they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. The crown of life. Ironically, is the martyr's crown. The person who would die for Christ gets the crown of life. Interesting. Why is it a crown of life? (laughs) Because that's what Jesus is all about, Charlie Brown. He is about life. He said, I have come that they have life and have it abundantly. Those who receive the crown of life, they're the ones who are going to be able to say, I'll follow him even if it kills me. Can you you say that? I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. I'll follow Jesus if I lose relationships because of it. I'll follow Jesus if it costs me my job. I'll follow Jesus if it brings hardship and turmoil and difficulty into my life. I'll follow Jesus if I end up dead for it. If that's you, the crown of life is waiting for you. And by the way, this this isn't a bad thing. This isn't like misery and pain and death and despair and hardship and oh, but I'm gonna get the crown of life. Now this this is remarkable, even for the worst persecution, it's still life. It's still life. Show me someone who loves Jesus more than their own life, and I will show you someone who knows how to live. That's when it starts to get fun. Those brief moments in my life where I have wanted more of Him than anything else have been the most fun. They've been the most alive. And if you want to really live, love Jesus with your life. Well, there's one more crown of note in the New Testament. One more we need to pay attention to. But it's a crown that you will never wear. A crown I will never wear. It was only worn by one who was worthy enough to bear it. It's the crown of thorns. Isn't it interesting that he promises us crowns of gold and to pay for it, he wore the crown of thorns. That's how the crowns come to us. John 19 verse 2, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And put a purple robe on him and Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Matthew chapter 27 verse 29, Matthew confirms this. Mark chapter 15 verse 17 confirms it as well. Four times we read of this in the gospels that Jesus wore the crown of thorns. And by the way, it's the only crown mentioned in the gospels. The Gospels that reveal to us, especially Matthew, King Jesus, and yet the only crown He wears is the crown of thorns. But it's so valuable to us because it's what purchased our leafy crowns of gold, that is, His jagged crown of thorns. That's the crown Jesus wore. See, from His head, from His hands, from His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did air such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? The crown of thorns. The crowns that are given to us because of what Jesus did to pay for them. Five crowns. Now, second thing to note. A crisis. A crisis erupts in the throne room and we come to, are you ready? Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, sorry, I saw, I was in the wrong chapter there, Revelation chapter 5 verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. Book, the word book is Biblion, it's where we get Bible, it literally translates scroll. So where you see the word book used in the scriptures, it's scroll because that was the kind of book they had. Whether it was made of papyrus or parchment or vellum, ancient texts, biblion, were written on scrolls. Typically a scroll would be anywhere from 8 to 10 inches wide, not super wide. And these sheets were written in 3 inch columns across that 8 to 10 inch scroll. And then they would be wrapped around a wooden dowel for preservation. Small books would be put together, so books like Ruth or or Jude, smaller books would be tacked in with others because they were so short. But larger books would take up entire scrolls, Genesis, Exodus for one. In fact, the Isaiah scroll, discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls, when rolled out completely, the Isaiah scroll is 23 feet long. Big scroll. Then, of course, if you were to roll out the book of Revelation, it would come in at about 15 feet in length rolled out. Scrolls typically had a rough side and a smooth side. You would write on the smooth side and roll that up, and the rough side then would be outside of the scroll. But, but this scroll is unique. This scroll, in its description, is slightly different. And if you were a first-century real estate agent... You know exactly what this was. By the way, what uh, company would a first century real estate agent work for? (laughs) Century one. (laughs) A standard title deed for property. That's what we're looking at here. A standard title deed for property was written on one side, rolled up, and sealed with a single seal. You might say, well, Rick, that's not what we're looking at. Okay, hold on. But a a real estate agent would know. If you see that written that way, it's written on the inside, rolled up, and it's sealed. But seven seals with writing on the outside, that means something else. But these scrolls were known and were used for title deeds. Just before the uh, Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, God had Jeremiah purchase a worthless piece of property. Worthless, why? Because everything was going Everything has to go sale was happening as Babylon's coming in. The Jews are going out. Buying land at that time was a foolish venture. Jeremiah knew this. In Jeremiah chapter 32, in fact, turn in your Bibles there for a moment. Jeremiah 32. We're already deep enough into the writings of Jeremiah that he's spoken about the exile. He knows about the destruction, he's warned against it. No one's listening. But He has prophesied over and over and over, Jerusalem will fall, the temple will fall, it's all bad. And then God says, hey, Jeremiah, yes, Lord, buy some property. What? Watch this. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, behold. Behold. Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is an Anatot, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and he said to me, Buy my field, please, that is an Anatot, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And I love this. Then Jeremiah says, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. How do you know when God tells you something? Well, it comes to pass. You know, sometimes God will reveal something to you, He'll indicate something to you, and you you kind of put it on the shelf for years, and then it happens. And you know that was the word of the Lord. It's really the only way you truly do know for certain that, that God is the one who spoke when what He said has just happened. So Jeremiah, the great prophet, says that's how I knew he says, verse 9, I bought the field which was at Anatoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for it, or for him, seventeen shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, and called him witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Maseah, it's been a while in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard and I commanded Baruch in their presence saying, thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel, take these deeds this sealed deed of purchase so the rolled up scroll that's, that's sealed and this open deed put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time watch this for thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land this land that is about to burn this jerusalem that is about to fall the temple about to be raised to the ground and god is telling jeremiah buy property because houses are going to be built again it's a promise through Jeremiah to the people that while all that he's prophesied will take place, they're going to come back. And of course, you know God kept His Word. Verse 16, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for You. Verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? I love it. Jeremiah proclaims it, and God confirms it. Nothing is too difficult for me. Go back to Revelation 5. But while you're turning back there, I want you to think about this. Do you have in your life anything going on that's too difficult for him? Oh, there's plenty going on that's too difficult for me. There are days where I'm not sure how it's going to be done. Cheryl and I are facing some things this year. I won't go into it, but some things this year where we're looking at it saying, I don't know how. I don't know how this is even possible. In my flesh, as my wife will confirm, I say, well, we just can't do it. It's impossible. Can't be done. In my spirit, when my spirit man wakes up, I love to think about how God's going to do it. How's He going to pull this one off? That's what I meant before when I said those who love Jesus with their lives know how to really live. Because when hardship comes or the impossible faces you, if you can look at that and go, boy, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I can't wait to see. I have no idea how we're going to get to the other side of this mountain of problems, but wow, Lord, when we do, praise the Lord. I've said before, how much more fun to be praising the Lord on this side of the Red Sea than after you've already gone through it. Praising Him, worshipping Him by faith. Nothing He says is too difficult for Him. And in the Hebrew, the word nothing means nothing. Nothing is too difficult. So, I triple dog dare you to try to hand God anything He can't handle. I triple dog dare you to trust Him with whatever your hardship is right now. What is it? What is it tonight when you think about your life that seems to be insurmountable? Do you trust him? I love what my missionary friend once said, Gary Shepard, actually, Les. I was talking to Gary one time years ago about getting back into Nepal. I think I've shared this before. They banned him from coming into Nepal. I said, Gary, how are you going to get back into Nepal when the government of Nepal has banned you from going to Nepal? Gary said, it's not my problem, that's God's problem. Had his plane tickets, he was ready to go back. He got back into Nepal, by the way. It's not my problem, that's God's problem. And if God has said it before you, God's going to take you through it. He's going to make it work. Because nothing is too difficult for him. And Jesus said in Matthew 19.26, With God, all things are possible. Why are you talking about all this? we got to get back to this scroll. The problem is, the scroll is impossible. It's impossible. This is a real crisis, a real problem. Because at the throne, we see this title deed, verse 1, but it's more than just a deed of trust. If it was a deed of trust, it would be a scroll written on the inside with a single seal. But this scroll is written on the outside, as well as on the inside, with seven seals upon it. Note also that it's held in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Who is that? It's God the Father. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. When we were in chapter 4, Pastor Rick, I think you implied it was Jesus the Son. I did. How can it be both? Hold that thought. God the Father is on the throne. God is now holding this sealed document, this sealed scroll. Again, with writing on the inside, which is funny because John can't see that, but he knows. He recognized there's something written on the inside. There has to be because of what's written on the outside. And it's sealed not once, but seven times and you Bible students know this is a title deed in foreclosure. It's a deed of trust held in foreclosure. We know this from first century documentation. We know this is what they did. If land was lost, in Israel, by the way, land was everything. It was your inheritance. It was what was given to you. It was given originally by God through Moses, through Joshua to the people. And then they passed it along to their sons year after year generation after generation they kept the land because the land was everything and so Torah law protected property owners made sure that the owner of the land had a way if worst case scenario poverty strikes you lose everything you can't pay the mortgage and it goes into foreclosure there was a way to redeem the land they would take the title deed they would write on it roll it up, and they would write the terms of the foreclosure and seal it up seven times, marking the fact that the person had seven years to pay it back. And as they paid it, you could pop a seal, you know, ultimately until there was the final seal left. And note that this title here, well, this title had to be held by an impartial party. Back when Jeremiah handed over the title, remember he handed it to a guy named Baruch? He handed it to Baruch as an impartial third person to hold the deed, to put it in a jar and keep it. Well, the Bible says, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. That's why he's holding the title deed as he's seated there on the throne. The terms of repayment, that's what's written on the outside of the scroll. And the sealing up seven times makes it available for the original owner to redeem it for up to seven years, and when the debt was paid, the property would be returned. So again, this scroll in verse 1 marks a title deed in foreclosure, and it is the very deed I believe God originally gave to humanity. Gave mankind. The title deed to the planet. The title deed to rule and reign over the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them, and He blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, Subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Rule over the earth. Gang, it was it was a, a, a title of righteousness. Maintain in my name this earth that I am giving to you. And so God, in essence, hands them a title deed. But if we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and go ahead and do that if you'd like to, Hebrews chapter 2, we recognize that something took place with that deed that was given. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, which says, you there? Which says, He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Note that. The Hebrew pastor is talking about the world to come. Alright, so are we tonight, by the way. But one is testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor and have appointed Him over the works of Your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. He's quoting Psalm 8. David's Psalm. Which, by the way, is not a psalm of the Messiah. And when you hear what we just read... What is the Son of Man that you're concerned about Him? You've crowned Him with glory and honor. This is the psalm of the exaltation of man. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about you and me. David is blown away as he looks at the sky, he looks at the stars and the handiwork of God, and he's saying, What is man? Did you care about us? What did you think about us? You subjected everything to us. You put everything in subjection under us, Genesis one 26 through 26-28. You did this, Lord. The passage does not refer to Jesus. It refers specifically to humanity. And David is talking about the authority that God gave mankind at creation. But we lost it. We became morally bankrupt, sin foreclosed, and we lost the farm. And the Hebrew pastor goes on and says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And that's how you know it's not Jesus that he's talking about. We don't see all things subjected to Him. So question, who lost their authority? Jesus or mankind? Has Jesus lost His authority? In fact, the Bible tells us, Paul says, Ephesians 1.21, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, which by the way is your non-believing friend and family member. Jesus is still above them. He's still over them. He still has authority if they'll listen. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Paul says, and He put all things in subjection under His feet. And the Hebrew pastor says, but we do not yet see all things subjected to Him, so Him is mankind. Him is you and me. 1 Peter 3.22 says, He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Jesus has all rule, power, power and authority over all things. But we lost the farm. Jesus didn't lose creation. We did that. And we became indebted to an evil banker. Glenn, I'm sure you were a good banker. But there's an evil banker out there. He's your adversary, the devil, Peter says, 1 Peter 5.8, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Or we could say, looking to foreclose. As part of his overall foreclosure, there's a particular inheritance. Not only is it just the planet, but the devil wants to foreclose on Israel itself Israel how do we know well the prophet daniel told us daniel chapter 9 verse 27 he tells of a time when the many will sign a seven year peace deal with antichrist listen to this daniel 9:27 he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even to a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's going to make desolate, and he himself will be desolated. That's Antichrist. And this whole thing kicks off when this treaty, this deed, this, this covenant is signed between Antichrist and who? The nation of Israel. You know what's interesting? I'm going to submit this for your thinking because up until this week, I always thought it was Israel that signs the covenant with Antichrist. You know what Daniel says? He says the many, the many, Israel will be part of that, but perhaps that includes the United Nations, European Union, what's left of America, the nations of the world. Antichrist! Antichrist! He's our man! Now, they won't call him that. They won't know that's who he is. So i got to wear a little t-shirt that says, Hello, my name is Antichrist. But the many, Daniel says. Interesting phrase. The many will sign a covenant with him. And it's a seven-year-long covenant, which is the length of the tribulation. And we're about to get there. We will, Lord willing, in the first of the year, beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation... That treaty is signed, and off he goes. And halfway into that tribulation period of seven years, three and a half years, he breaks the treaty and all hell breaks loose on earth. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24:15, "Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place," let the reader understand, "then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." Jesus took Daniel's prophecy and launched it to the future. And it has not happened since Jesus said that. It will happen Midway through that seven year tribulation. Now, if you're vague on the tribulation, and you're hearing this and you're going, man, this, this is kind of overwhelming. By the time we're done studying through Revelation, you're going to know it. You will get it. And we'll take the time to really look at that later. But the many signed a treaty, and the treaty is to, it's for the land. And the devil wants the land. He wants Israel, as badly as he wants the planet. And the devil will try to call in the debt. Back in Revelation chapter five, verse two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals?" And note this: no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. This is stunning. No one is worthy. Don't just skip over that. And go. I oh, know worthy is a lamb. Hang on a second. Think that through. No one in all heaven can open the scroll. No seraphim. No cherubim. No principality. No ruler. No angelic authority. Nobody is worthy. In heaven or clearly on earth, no philanthropist, humanitarian, or patron, no founder of charities... Did you know since its founding in two thousand the Gates Foundation has given away forty six billion dollars to charities? Forty-six billion. That's mind boggling. And it's about half of the Gates fortune, which is even more mind boggling. And Bill Gates himself could not pay off this title deed, couldn't pay this debt. It is totally locked down by our depravity. Crisis in heaven. Who can open the scroll? And then I began, John says, to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Have you ever... Maybe I'm just a freak. But have you ever had a dream where something happened in the dream that was so upsetting in the dream that you woke up in tears? Okay, many of you are nodding. So we've we've had that. It's kind of a shared experience. That's a weird one. You feel like an idiot. You're lying in the bare bed going, what am I, what am I, Scrooge? What's going on here? John is up there and he is overwhelmed. Now, now what's remarkable is John knows what's going on. He should. But caught up in the moment and seeing this, this tragedy. Everything, all is lost is what John is sensing and he's weeping because no one was found worthy to open the book. That word worthy is axios in the Greek. Interesting word. It's where we get our word axiom. An axiom is is a statement that is intrinsically true. If something's axiomatic, it's something you can count on, you know, the sky is blue, would be axiomatic on a blue sky day. I know in the Northwest you're going, the sky is being gray, Rick. Okay, the sky is gray. Axiomatic. It's something that is absolutely and intrinsically true in and of itself. Axios, worthy, means something that is weighed for value. And its value is, is profound. Its value is intrinsic and intentional. Worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy. Look at verse 4. As he weeps greatly, no one was found worthy. And one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's what elders do, by the way. Elders point people to Jesus. Elders see people weeping and they say, no, 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 look at Jesus. Elders see people fearful and say, the Lord is the answer. Elders look at someone who thinks there's no hope and gives them hope. And the hope is Jesus. And He is awesome. See, the elder points out, this is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Judah's lion. Genesis 49 verse 9. All Israel is looking at his sons, Jacob. And Judah comes up and, and he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Jesus is the lion. Awesome. He's also ancient. He's awesome and He's ancient. He's the root of David. And remember, the root comes before, not after. Well, Jesus does both. He's also called the branch because He branches out from the root of David. But He is also Himself the root of David. Isaiah goes even further. After calling Jesus the branch in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, in verse 10, He says, "...in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse." Who will stand as a signal for the people's and his resting place will be glorious. He's not just the root of David, he's the root of Jesse. He's the one that Jesse comes from. The entire lineage, the lineage of Christ <laughs> comes from Christ. He's ancient. He's awesome. He said, "I am Revelation 22:16, the root and the descendant of David, the before and the after, the first and the last." But here's what's really weird. In light of him being the awesome one and the ancient one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, what John describes next is very strange. And I saw verse six between or literally that word between is in the middle, in the middle of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. A lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He's awesome. He's ancient. He's a little lamb. He's a cute little lamb. He's a cute little pet lamb. Why would I say that? Because the word for lamb is arin. A-R-E-N in the Greek. And that's not the word that John uses. That's the word for lamb. That's the word you would expect to find there. That's not what he uses. He uses the word arneon. Which takes Arwen to another place. A lamb now becomes a cute little pet lamb. Now look at that contrast. Here he is, the lion, the root, the little lamb. little lamb. You're going to pet the little lamb, bring the little lamb into the house, the Arneon. And John paints the weirdest picture, perhaps in the entire Revelation, of a sweet little lamb scarred and marred by a fatal slaughter. That's the Passover. That's what they did. You Bible students know what the Jewish families did at the time of Passover. It's the week before the offering of the Passover lamb, a cute little arnion, a pet lamb, was brought into the house. They fed it. They cared for it. They played with it. And then they took it to the temple and slaughtered it. I can't even imagine that practice. But it was painting a picture to be understood that this sweet, innocent little arnion. This little lamb is slain. The word slain, killed by violence. Violently slaughtered. Back before we had to put Reggie to sleep. And by the way, that was the most brutal thing I've ever had to do. Put my dog Reggie to sleep. We were a mess for months. (laughs) You know, when when I hear about people losing their pets, I, I probably haven't been the most compassionate person in the world. We had to put Reggie down and being in the room and watching him go to sleep, and it was just heart-wrenching. This was the little dog who followed me down the hall and into the office for years before we had a church building. I'm not kidding. I would come out of the bedroom ready to go to work, and I'd say, Hey, Reggie, want to go to work? And he'd get up wherever he was, and he'd follow me into the office, and he'd lie there at my feet, my cute little dog. And I'd study all day long, and Reggie would be right there. I'd get up to go make lunch. Reggie would come out. He'd be in there in the kitchen just waiting until I went back to the office. Let's go back to work. And Reggie would follow me in. Cute, sweet little dog. Even when he started peeing all over the house, we put diapers on him and he was cute again. (laughs) I can't even imagine if you were to tell me, Rick, you need to take Reggie out and slaughter him. Not just sweetly, quietly put him to sleep. You need to take a knife to his neck and cut it open need to let the blood flow. Jesus is this, this picture here. John, it, it, It's again, it's a it's a weird, bizarre picture. John looks and he's... Listen, people have tried to paint this. Artists have tried to render this on canvas. And it's weird. Have you seen the picture? Have you seen the, the lamb with the seven eyes and the seven horns? Is you know... That's not what John saw. He's painting a picture. He uses the word like as if a lamb standing, as if slain, including or having seven horns, seven eyes. As if the word in the Hebrew, hos, means like. So now John is using a similitude, a symbol. He's, he's painting a picture for us to understand because when John looks at Jesus there in the throne room, even having seen Him glorified in Revelation chapter 1, Now John sees him and he recognizes the marks on his brow from the crown of thorns. The wounds are there. He notices holes in his hands and in his feet from the hammered nails. He sees the mark of the gash in his side from the driven spear. He understands now what Isaiah meant when he said in Isaiah 52:14 his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men remember of all the apostles John was at the cross John saw Jesus John would have seen him at that time marred beyond recognition and now John sees him in heaven this is the lamb slain this is the lamb brutalized Jesus said through Zechariah the prophet, Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In Zechariah 13 verse 6, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Again, a strange, weird picture. A lamb as if slain. Seven eyes, seven horns. But John is speaking symbolically as if. Like. And the picture means something. The lamb slain clearly is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 7, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Or John one twenty nine. John the Baptist said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." So the Lamb, this is Jesus, a clear allusion to what he did as Christ, our Passover, Paul would say. But the seven eyes. Well, we've talked about this. The seven eyes, the seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit. Revelation 1-4, Revelation 4-5, the seven spirits before the throne. Now, now what John sees, the eyes, the seven spirits are on Jesus. The, the intimacy of Father, Son, and Spirit here is pretty stunning. The Lamb has seven eyes. These, these eyes speak of His awareness. These are eyes that see. These are eyes of wisdom. These are the eyes of the of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter four, verse ten. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. And that's what Paul says, sent out into all the earth. Or John, I'm sorry, John says that. In chapter five, verse six. He is writing and he's grabbing the attention of the Hebrew mind. He's pointing back to the Hebrew scriptures and he's saying, This is the Holy Spirit I'm talking about. The seven eyes that roam the earth. The seven horns. What is up with that? The seven horns speak seven. In all cases here, the seven speak of the completeness, but the seven horns are the strength and authority. Strength. Horns in the Bible speak of strength, speak of power. First Samuel chapter two, verse ten. Hannah, you remember Hannah who ended up becoming mother to Samuel, the prophet? Didn't have a baby. Goes into the tabernacle. She's praying there. Eli the priest thinks she's drunk because she's so overwrought. But she's praying. And as she prays, she says, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed, His Mashiach. Hannah's prophesying. She didn't even know it. He will exalt the authority, the strength of his anointed one. Solomon, in Psalm 132, verse 17, writes, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed, my Mashiach. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. And so the seven horns speak of complete power, complete strength, but specifically... Strength to save. Strength unto salvation on this lamb. And his death, though he was slaughtered, death has not weakened the lamb who was slain. He is completely powerful to save. And this brings us to then understanding the Christ. The Christ. Verse seven. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, back to the question. If the Lamb takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne, who's on the throne? And the answer is God the Father. But I thought Jesus was on the throne. Remember when we started, we were in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, and we saw the Ancient of Days take his seat on the throne. The Ancient of Days, whose description is eerily similar, to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And so you read Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10 you think, oh, that's, that's Jesus seated on the throne. There He is, the Ancient of Days, Jesus Christ. But then you read verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7 and the reason I say this is because what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 is what's taking place in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And what Daniel does not tell us, but John does tell us, is in that moment, the Ancient of Days God the Father has the scroll to the Ancient of Days God the Son. This is just so awesome. Is Jesus on the throne or is God on the throne? Yes! Yes! Yes, and I know it's mind-boggling, but this is yet another manifestation of our triune God, Father on the throne, Son on the throne, because note that the Lamb is, verse 6, between the throne. No, in the middle of the throne. The phrase is in the middle. Father's on the throne. Son is on the throne. Where's the Holy Spirit? Seven eyes. He's on the throne. Father, Son, and Spirit are seen together sharing the throne in heaven. Father seated. Christ the Lamb in the middle. The Holy Spirit, seven eyes. But if that spiritually just freaks you out, let me make the picture a little easier to see. Do you remember what Jesus said at the very end of the seven letters to the church? He who overcomes, Revelation 3.21, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. This is a big throne. This is a big mamma jamma throne. This is a huge seat in heaven that Jesus not only shares with the Father, but invites you to come alongside and sit with Him. Such is the glory of God. Such is the one who is worthy. Verse 8, when He had taken the scroll... The four living creatures, those cherubim, and the 24 elders, I believe the church, fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp. So the music of heaven and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang, note this, they sang a new song, which we mentioned on Sunday, but it's vital to understand this is a song never before sung until this moment. It's a new song. The Lamb has the scroll. The Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. The Lamb can redeem the world. And He's got it in hand now. And we begin to sing, Worthy are You to take the book and break its seals. For You were slain and purchased for God with Your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them or us to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they or we will reign upon the earth. It's the song of the redeemed. Rising from the throne room of God. We should change the words to that song, Rachel. And what do the redeemed sing? They sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And I remind you for all these glimpses of heaven across all of history, this final huge Epic glimpse that that we are given. We are given now so that we might look to Jesus, the worthy one. I think if God had given this vision to Adam and Eve, they would have been looking all over the place because they would not have understood what Jesus did. They wouldn't know who Jesus really was. They wouldn't comprehend the vastness of the plan of redemption that God was laying into place, even when they sinned in the garden, they wouldn't have gotten it. God is so faithful. He is so intentional with you and with me. He has taken all of eternity to unroll this scroll so that we could look and understand worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. By the way, the word worthy in chapters 4 and 5 is used five times. He is worthy because He is the one who brings the grace of God into this world. The last four verses I'm going to save for Sunday. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Lord, I ask that You would give us in our hearts, and our minds, and our understanding, a glimpse of the worth of the value of Jesus. The little lamb. The lamb who beloved and sweet and innocent and gentle and meek the lamb who you just you just love you just want to be with but who became our passover who became brutalized and slaughtered who gave up everything the lamb who before the moment of sacrifice was worthy intrinsically but through the sacrifice became worthy intentionally The Lamb of God. Lord Jesus, it is you. It is you. We worship you. We exalt in your name. We exalt you. We lift you up. We declare again and again the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus who is worthy. I can't wait, Father, to join the cherubim and the seraphim and the myriad upon myriad of angels around the throne, and all of my brothers and sisters, your people, the royal priesthood, to be and worship and to declare worthy is the Lamb. Lord, make us ready. Do what you must do to prepare our hearts for that glorious day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5 where the 24 elders begin to sing, that's the first time that you, that I, that we are being quoted in the Bible. Do you realize that? That's us singing. Because we're in that group, singing the song of the redeemed, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We're going to sing that song. Think about that while we sing this song tonight, let's stand together.